Hi, this is Simon Yeo. Thank you so much for subscribing to my podcast, Simon Says. I want you to know that I appreciate every one of you out there for tuning in. Now check out today's podcast. Former Attorney General of Malaysia and noted lawyer, the Honourable Tommy Thomas recently published his memoir, My Story, Justice in the Wilderness. His memoir elicited both praises as well as condemnations from the wide spectrum of commentators. A very good day to all of you tuning to the show. My name is Simon Yeo and welcome to our podcast. Today, we want to discuss Tommy Thomas' memoir in relation to the development of the rule of law in Malaysia. So what I plan to do is two episodes focusing on the rule of law in Malaysia. In the first part, I'll be exploring some broad issues raised by Tommy's memoir, again in context of the development of the rule of law in Malaysia, or the lack of it, as well as issues concerning our freedom and liberty. In the second part, which will be next episode, we will attempt to explore and discuss the implications of the recently declared emergency in Malaysia. Now, Tommy Thomas discussed some issues, some hair-raising issues in his memoir, and the one I want to cover today are two. The first one is the 1969 May 13 riots and a subsequent response by the government which impacted our nation for generations. The second issue is the judicial crisis in 1988 and the related Oprasi Lala in 1987, where more than 100 opposition political figures, intellectuals, journalists were detained under Internal Security Act. Now, when the memoir was released, there was a huge response, positive and negative, but also bad lashes from certain parties. And many of them lodged police report against Tommy Thomas. <laughs> you know, lodging police report is such a Malaysian thing, especially from our politicians and public figures. It has really become a joke. You see, we are not supposed to be a police state. And police is not the solution to all our disputes. In any case, if anyone felt aggrieved by the publication of this memoir, they should sue Tommy Thomas for defamation. Interestingly, Tommy Thomas had come out and say that he is prepared for any such actions and he will demand costs to be paid by those who attempted to do so. You see, in Malaysia, you can sue anyone you want, but if the defendant can show to the court that the action was not in good faith, the defendant can request the court to collect deposits. And in the event, those who initiated the actions, they fell in the court of law, they also had to pay the cost. So that is what Tommy Thomas had said. Now, the other thing we need to understand is what a memoir is. A memoir is a document written from a certain point of view a certain vantage point, which reminds me of a classic scene in Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Now, in that movie, I, I believe most people have watched it towards the end of Luke Skywalker's training, and he was suddenly annoyed that his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, had not told him that Darth Vader was actually his father. What Obi-Wan told him was that Luke's father was actually killed by Vader. And responding to Luke, this is what Obi-Wan Kenobi said. Look, what I told you was true from a certain point of view. 
So that is what a memoir is. And everyone who is listening to the reporting on a memoir or if you intend to get a copy, in fact, I, I have been wanting to get a copy, but it is out of stock at the moment. And everyone should chill because what Tommy Thomas had written was written from his certain point of view. Now, before we go into the two topics which I have lifted and summarized uh, from Tommy's memoir, let us discuss briefly the concept of the rule of law. Now, the rule of law, we had explored quite a bit of that in season one. If you missed season one, I think you can listen to episode one and two and maybe some other episode where we laid the foundations of the rule of law. Now, when we talk about the rule of law, basically, we are talking about the existence of proper legal system, the supposed dispensation that is the dishing out and application of justice. For those who believe in the rule of law, and this is something that I'm very passionate about, and I, I strongly believe that in a society that desires to advance and prosper, we need to have the rule of law. Those who believe there is the hope there is the expectation that justice will be served, it will be administered, and it is based on the legal foundations of our nation, which is the highest law in this land, the constitution. Now, if we study the history of Malaysia, even in a cursory manner or in detail, I think it is easy to come to a conclusion that the application of the rule of law in Malaysia had been inconsistent and spotty at best. And I really believe this is a very fair and objective statement. You see, our constitution has been amended so many times over the last 60 years and you know, people argue over how many times it has been amended. Some people say 60 times, some people say 70 times. Some people say if you look at the exact provision change in the constitution, it is more than 1,000 times. And, and many argue that the constant amendment of the constitution has changed the spirit of the Federation of Malaysia as the parties had intended back in 1963. You see, the reason the constitution can be amended so many times is primarily due to the dominant political power of the Barisan National BN Coalition. And I mean, when we contrast constitutional amendment, let's look at another nation. Let's look at United States of America. In their almost 300 years of history, their constitution has been amended less than 30 times. Now, coming back to the reason why the constitution can be amended, it is due to the dominance of the Barisan National Coalition. But we have to remember the reason they can remain dominant was ultimately the voters, you and me, who are eligible to vote. You know, the majority kept putting them back to power until the first change of federal government in 2018. Then in recent time, there was a lot of discussion primarily from the people in Sabah and Sarawak concerning the intent of all parties in relation to the formation of Malaysia in 1963. You see, there is a perception that Sabah and Sarawak, again, I use the word perception because whether it's true or not, the perception remains. And the perception is that Sabah and Sarawak did not get their fair end of the bargain as reached in the Malaysian Agreement 1963. We just call it MA63. And it's very simple, really. 
There are many, many terms put in MA63, but those terms were not updated in the constitution of the then newly formed nation, Malaysia. The constitution remains very similar to the original Malaya constitution, 1957. So there was just this feeling that they did not get the end of the bargain which they were supposed to get. So the momentum for all these discussions, it can be traced back to the perceived unfairness and lack of justice. In other words, the rule of law has not been served adequately in Malaysia for the past 50 to 60 years. Okay, so that's uh, all I want to talk about the rule of law because I want to go into what Tommy Thomas wrote in his memoir. Now, the first one is the May 13th incident. Now, most of us, we were not even born yet in 1969. But Tommy Thomas was... So he was not talking about something that is fiction. He was not talking about a hearsay. Somebody was telling him or from the figment of his imagination. He was there at that moment, at that time. So let me read directly from a passage from his memoir pertaining to his thoughts on this matter. And I start, quote, Applying the cui bono principle, that is, who benefited from the riots? The principal beneficiary was Tung Razat, who after the emergency was declared, there is some mystery as to whether the Yandipetuan Argon had actually signed the proclamation of emergency. It was not produced in the court in subsequent litigation. Was appointed to the powerful post of Director of National Operations Council, NOC. Parliament was suspended and the cabinet was sidelined because all major decisions made by NOC. It was a mystery to me why Tunku as Prime Minister and hence the obvious candidate to be the director of NOC was not so appointed. I recall asking around about Tunku's non-appointment, but no satisfactory explanation was ever put forward by anyone. End of quote. Okay. Now, then Tommy went on to talk about the May 13 incident itself, the estimated number of deaths, and, you know, basically his interpretation of what happened. And the way he described it was that his interpretation is actually an objective yardstick. It was a fair comment based on his point of view. And he said that the violence was contained in a day or two. It did not affect much of the rest of the West Malaysia, let alone Sabah and Sarawak. And the people in Sabah Sarawak only heard about the event days and sometimes weeks after the whole incident. Okay, coming back to his memoir again, and let me continue to read a portion, okay, starting the quote. The response was shockingly disproportionate. A national emergency was declared. Although nothing untoward occurred outside Kuala Lumpur, a national curfew was also declared. The NOC was set up, the cabinet sidelined, and parliament suspended. The country was ruled by decree and for all practical purposes by one man, the director of NOC, Tung Razak. Malaysian society was transformed. The NAP was introduced initially for 30 years, but is still in existence some 50 years on. The education policy was radically changed. Likewise, the civil service. A clear demarcation was laid down in 1970, Malay dominance was here to stay. The social contract agreed to by the three major races under British supervision after hard bargaining during the pre-Medica era 
was substantially modified. Ketuana Melayu made its appearance to stay forever, so long as the stars shine and winds blow. End of quotation. Now, that was quite a substantial but succinct writing of Thomas, and really, he was trying to convey his thoughts and feelings on May 13 riot, and more importantly, the generational implication that it has for Malaysia. In terms of his commentary on the riot itself, there was really nothing out of the ordinary in terms of what you know, people perceive about May 13. Now, again, why do I use the word perceive? Because although we do have official record of what happened in May 13, many, especially the older generation, they felt like we were not being told of what really happened. What do we make of all these perceptions? So I was just reading Terence Neto in his commentary in Malaysia Kini just recently, 10 of February 2021. And the commentary is entitled, The Ghost of May 13 Won't Lie Still. And basically, he was touching on the review of this memoir by, by Anwar Ibrahim. Okay, so Anwar Ibrahim did a review, relatively positive, but he was talking about the May 13. And basically, Anwar Ibrahim asserted that what Tommy Thomas was saying was on the verge of conspiracy theory with very little factual evidence. Now, Terence Neto, he concluded this, that it is precisely the lack of information released to the public that will continue to flame the fires of this conspiracy theory. And specifically, Terence Neto, he referred to the lack of the release of recording and other writing and statement, especially by the first Prime Minister, Tunku Abdul Rahman, because there were many reports that Tunku Abdul Rahman, he had some recording, he had some writing, he had some views pertaining to May 13, but those were not quite released. Why was there so little comments from the then Prime Minister when the events happened? It sounded like some people wanted to oppress and suppress the information. Now, we're not here to discuss conspiracy theories, okay? Not at all. Because the greater issue is that the May 13 riot actually led to the formulation of NEP, which led to systemic corruption. And the systemic corruption is mainly due to the implementation, as I shared in previous episodes. You see, the idea of economic equality, it can be good if it is done properly, if it is done short-term. You see, you cannot do it forever because you will cause people to be lazy and dependent on big government. But there is a great problem with the executions of NEP with all the GLC, government-linked corporations, etc., etc. So th those are uh, topics for another day, okay? So basically, when we look at NEP, again, just from my perspective, in long-term, it did not fully achieve what it was meant to do. So basically, coming back to how we view Tommy's com command, what Tommy Thomas was arguing was basically this. As horrific as May 13 had been, it did not justify the declaration of emergency. It did not justify the implementation of many national policies that changed the entire fabric of our nation's society education, civil service, and, and Tommy was talking about the very social contract that people had reached before Medeca was also altered. 
You see, racial and religious issues remain topics which many of us are not quite comfortable to discuss even now. We have not really moved forward from May 13. So this is just one of the issues that we have to combat and deal with. And that is why when emergency was recently declared in the name of pandemic, there was justifiable responses from many learned and respected people. And people are asking the questions, is it really necessary? Is the declaration of emergency disproportionate to the issues that the decree of emergency is trying to tackle? And that is something that uh, we will talk about in the next episode. So that's really the main point that Tommy Thomas was trying to say. Actually, about the riot itself, not about the NEP, etc., etc., but was the initial declaration of emergency, the formation of NOC, which causes the entire fabric of our society to be transformed, is that justifiable? So that's something for us to think about, okay? Now, the second issue which you talk about, and this one relates more directly to the rule of law, is really the issue of Oprasi Lalan in 1987 and a subsequent judicial crisis in 1988. Now, I'm going to just again quote directly and then we'll discuss, okay? So, Tommy Thomas referred to Dr. Mahadeer in reference to Oprasi Lalan 1987, okay? So, the start of quote. The political master and responsible minister, this brutal exercise of state power against Malaysia's own citizens, innocent of any criminal wrongdoing. All the detainees were eventually released with most of the, the opposition leaders returning to public life. A climate of fear, the desired goal of the national police chief and the home minister descended onto Malaysia after 27th of October 1987 and was to shape the mode, the thinking of Malaysians for years thereafter. These were the dark days of our history. End of quotation. So let me stop here for a moment. You see, at the heart of Oprasi Lalam was the use of the oppressive Internal Security Act, ISA, of course, which has since been removed. And the use of ISA to detain people without charging them with an offence. This was perhaps one of the most serious assault on the rule of law in Malaysia. The whole operation created a climate of fear. And whenever there is fear, whenever people lose the voice to fight the tyranny against the rule of law, as a nation, we then descend into a season where the rule of law becomes weak. That is why whenever we see disproportionate use of power of government, especially to restrict freedom and liberty. And in the past episode, I talked about that in relation to pandemic and COVID-19 and lockdown. We have to look at it seriously from the perspective of the rule of law. Is that the type of society we want to see? Do we want to see society being driven and ruled by fear? Is that what we want the future to be like? So these are the things for us to ponder. Okay, and then Tommy Thomas continued on to, uh, commenting on Oprasi Laland, and I start a the quote. There were two phases of the preventive detentions under the dreaded ISA. The first, which could not extend more than 60 days, was terribly harsh and repressive. Detainees were kept in solitary confinement, interrogated 
unceasingly, with some detainees claiming assault, without doubt, phase one was meant to break one's spirit. Some were released as a 60-day period come to an end. Chandra Muzaffar comes to mind. Most were sent to Kamunting Detention Centre. This was phase two, and the detention here could be up to two years, which could be extended indefinitely. None of the 100-odd detainees had committed any crime or offence under the ordinary law of the land. None were charged and they were all innocent. They were detained to silence them. Operation Lalang was perhaps the worst abuse of preventive detentions under the ISA, used blatantly to punish critics and opponents of the UMNO government. So you see, the authority used ISA when they could not charge the people with ordinary legislations and ordinary application of the rule of law. Now, we already have many laws which are, you know, already giving the authority a lot of leverage, a lot of power, but even then, they couldn't find a suitable law to charge them. So they used ISM and many of them were detained for up to two years. Now, Tommy Thomas went on to share an interesting story from the time he was writing for the now defunct Asian Wall Street Journal, uh, which was the Dow Jones flagship in Asia at that time. So Tommy and another person, Rafael Pura, who were writing for the Asian Wall Street Journal, had in 1986, just a year prior to Oprasi Lalan, they had written some stories detailing the misuse of public funds and sometimes outright corruption. And this really caused Dr. Mahadir, the then Prime Minister, to be really, really angry. And to such an extent, the government was able to order Thomas to leave the country. And Rafael Pura at that time, who was not in the country, was not allowed to return. It's like, wow, what kind of law is this that you can ask your own citizens to leave the country? If the person has broken any law, why don't you charge them under the existing law? It, this is just unbelievable. So anyway, Dow Jones decided to fight back and they engaged two of the most distinguished Queen's Council. And the case went to the Supreme Court. And, you know, at that time, it's the highest court of the land and it has since been renamed Federal Court, Okay. And very interestingly, the Supreme Court, after hearing all the evidence, applications, they allowed Dow Jones' appeal. So Thomas did not have to leave the country. Rafael Pura was allowed back into Malaysia. And, you know, the rule of law prevailed at that time. This infuriated Mahathir even more. And then we, along with other issues arising from the internal squabbling of UMNO at that time, which caused Dr. Mahathir to constantly attack the judiciary for the next 10, 11, 12 months, eventually it led to the 1988 judicial crisis, which we will not have time to cover today. In short, a large portion of the rule of law died with Oprasi Lala in 1987, and then the final nails in a coffin. The, the coffin for the rule of law, it came about with the 1988 judicial crisis. So the rule of law in our judiciary system was on intensive care unit. It was on ICU ever since then. And we're still railing and we're still trying to recover from it. Now, although we have seen some perceived independence and you kept hearing me using the word perceived because that is what it is. You know, nobody knows for sure if it is real or not. And we have seen some perceived independence from the judiciary in the form of how some 
ministers from the former Barisan national government were charged with corruption, you know. I mean, it's still stage one in high court. You know, they can appeal. The final decision could be anything. The general feeling, and I'm speaking for myself, I'm speaking for the many people that I speak to, that I meet, is that we still do not really have a truly independent judiciary. That is a feeling, okay? I like to be proven wrong in this aspect. And then finally, in relation to the draconian laws such as ISA, which basically enabled Oprasi Laland, Tommy Thomas also commented on the failure of the Bakatang Harapan government to reform many of such draconian laws. Now, it is true that ISA eventually was repealed, but you still have other laws like SOSMA, you have the Printing Press Act, and there are many parts of the penal code that can be used to silence or to go against political opponent, okay? So some of these criticisms against the Pakatang Harapan government, of which Tommy Thomas himself was part of, I believe it was fair criticism, okay? So I think everyone needs to be able to receive criticism constructively and try to learn from that. Yes, the Pakatang Harapan government, they did fail to honour many of the points they made in their manifesto prior to the election. But nevertheless, this is what we need to remember. We know that the change of government in 2018, it was such a watershed moment in Malaysia's political history. It remained significant and important. Now, do not listen to people and do not entertain those who say the change in 2018 is not important. Do not listen to them. It matters that government can be changed. It matters that people still have the voice and power to shift things around. Elected representatives should be afraid and accountable to the people who gave them the mandate and power to serve. It is never easy to change course. And this is what election in 2018 represents. It represents a change of course after 50, 60 years of constant division and separation based on skin tone, based on religion. So people wanted a change. But the change of government in 2018, I believe it was the beginning of a new political discourse in this nation. Yes, we may not get all that we hoped for from the change in 2018. And even right now, we have a different government. But as a whole, as Malaysians, as a nation, we must learn to move on. And we have to learn to reject ideas that cause us to fight one another. Now, I know it is not easy. You know, you don't undo things which has been, you know, done over 50, 60 years in just one moment. You see, as Malaysians, we can all become greater if we come to together. But it only makes sense if the unity by coming together makes sense. Only if that unity gives us mutual value, mutual respects, freedom, liberty, happiness, you know, the opportunity to pursue happiness, I think that is something that everyone wants, the upholding of the rule of law. And that is why, even as I finish today, I remain hopeful. I remain bullish. You know, I, I'm like very encouraged by what has been happening. Now, not everything is good news, but that there is a path that Malaysian can go for. And that the unity that causes us to have that mutual values and mutual respect, 
that is something that the majority of Malaysians still desire. And that is definitely something that is worth fighting for. Okay, so that is all for now. I know this episode has been a little bit longer. I trust that you have been informed, you have been encouraged. So until next time, bye-bye for now.